The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Everybody doing all right this morning? Yeah. Well, turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 3, <laughs> verses 7 to 19. That'll be our section of God's Word that we look at this morning. And what I love about passages like ours today is how real they make Jesus. Though central to this text is Jesus' revelation as the Son of God, the circumstances that are outlined here really highlight his humanity. He experienced the demands of life, the crushing burdens of others' needs. He even had a desire to escape to the sea and to the solitude of the mountains. All the while, hordes of people were wanting things from him, and really, I think what he wanted was just to hang with his closest friends on the mountain. And while there, he even knows that one of those close friends would soon betray him. So let's continue this morning in our verse-by-verse study through Mark and answer this question, who is this man? Grab your copy of God's Word and follow along as I read now Mark 3, beginning in verse 7. They say this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word for God's people and our text for this morning. You likely notice now that this text breaks into two kind of nice parallel sections, don't they? they? They sit one next to another. The first one is the seaside saga next to the mountaintop meeting. And these two sections here, together they teach us this unifying theme, that many acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God, but few actually follow him. Together they teach us this, that the many acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God, but few actually follow him. And so let's stack these two things up side by side and see what we learn. In verses 7 to 12, the seaside saga, many, the many say this, I want what Jesus offers. Those, the crowds that are gathering, say, they're, they're really saying this, I want what Jesus offers. But in verses 13 to 19, At the mountaintop meeting, the few say this, I want Jesus. 
And the difference between those two statements is eternal. I want what Jesus offers versus I want Jesus. And so let's do this just for the sake of uh, our Bible study, for the sake of this message this morning. I want us to just stack the two passages up side by side so you can see the parallels and then you can hopefully see the two differences coming together in this one theme that the many acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, but few actually follow him. So look with me closer here at the Seaside Saga versus the mountaintop meeting. I got a chart here for us so you can help hopefully see how these two things stack up. In verse 7, look here with me as we, as we go a little bit deeper. They withdrew to the sea. Versus in chapter, or verse 13 rather, they went up on the mountain. But look at verse 7 here. They withdrew to the sea, and he's with his disciples. It's an unnamed group of followers, likely those that will be named in a few verses, those disciples. But uh, as we saw in chapter 1 and 2, there were many followers that were with him. And so he takes these. He, he, this is just after he'd had all these conflicts with the Pharisees, after he's done these great uh, miraculous healings all throughout the region of Galilee, at, uh, kind of in the midst, really likely, of his preaching tour throughout this region. He's now withdrew, and he's come back to the Sea of Galilee. He's come here run strategically to teach. He's come here to kind of get away from the, the crowds of the cities to hopefully find some respite. But he's withdrawing to the sea. Verses in verse 13 here, now he goes up to the mountains. The mountains are really, they, they surround the sea. If you go to Israel, you can come up, uh, see them. These, these aren't like Rocky Mountain mountains, by the way. These are more like Texas mountains, okay? These are, these are more like, uh, you know, the, the hills. Although, if you go, there are some very uh, steep cliffs. There, you can get some elevation. You can actually uh, ski in some areas of uh, Israel. Up in, the, up in the, the top of the, the mountains, they do get snow every once in a while. I wouldn't necessarily recommend just going to Israel to ski, but there's certain seasons and times of the year that you, that you can. Um, but he's withdrawing there, and he's taking his disciples. It's where Jesus has done, will do lots of ministry. He's already done there. It's where the Sermon on the Mount uh, was uh, taught, and uh, they will come here some very significant moments in his ministry at the mountain. And so you see, pitted against one another, ministry by the sea and ministry by the mountains. Now come back to uh, verse 7. Who is it that is with Jesus now? At the seaside saga, the crowd followed Jesus. A crowd followed Jesus versus in the mountaintop meeting, Jesus called his followers. Look closely with me at verses 7 to 8. There's maybe some tongue twisters. If you're unfamiliar with uh, the geography of Israel, here really it's like he was saying... Folks were coming from every corner, from north, south, east, and west. Galilee was the region he was in. Judea was just south of that. Jerusalem being the central city, the center hub of Israel. Idumea just being a little bit south of that. Beyond the Jordan is the eastern portion, and the cities of Tyre and Sidon are uh, kind of on the northwest of, uh, of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so you get the picture here that people are coming from all over the place. Great crowds had heard the reports of Jesus' miracles. They have heard that he is taught as one with authority. It says they had heard all that he was doing and they came upon him in mass. It was as if the circus was coming to town and tickets were being given away. Everybody wanted to come see this show. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Eron and I went to uh, see the Greek freak. Anybody know who he is? Any basketball players or fans in the house? Any Milwaukee Bucks fans in the house this morning? Oh, come on, y'all. Giannis Antetokounmpo, I can't even pronounce his name uh, correctly, but he plays for the Milwaukee Bucks, likely the MVP uh, of the NBA this year, better be. And I'm, I'm from Wisconsin, so as a Bucks fan, this is like great. And they came to play the Spurs, and there were people from all over the place that uh, converged upon the AT&T Center to, to watch this guy play. Now he pales in comparison to our Lord, doesn't he? But you get the picture. The crowds from all over the place are converging to see this man. But in the mountains, as he withdraws to the mountains, the crowds don't necessarily follow him. Look at verse 13. Jesus calls those whom he desired. Those whom he desired, and they came to him. Do you see that there at the end of verse 13? Underline that in your Bible. They came to him. And you also see it if you go back over to the end of verse 8. Same phrase right there. And that's as, a, as you're studying the Bible, as you are a, a good student of the scriptures, as you see repeated phrases like that, that should set off little alarms. You can underline that and, and, and mark those things because the writer is, is alerting us to some parallels, some important things that are happening here. And so one, the crowd comes to him. Now Jesus is calling his followers, those whom he desired, and they came to him. This is repeated, it's important. But here Jesus is called uh, those whom he loved or desired, is speaking of God's uh, electing love. These were unlikely men the ones who will read their names in just a second, but these were ones that were not chosen because they were super, super special, because they had it all figured out, because they had some sort of like athletic ability or attractive appearance that Jesus is like, I want these guys on my team. They were some of the most unlikely castaways in society, just ordinary fishermen, and yet Christ wanted them nearby. Doesn't mean that he didn't desire the crowds per se. He shows his common grace to the people that come. He shows his common power and heals their diseases. And yet here is a group of men whom he desired to spend uh, this close, personal, intimate time with. And in verses 16 to 19, we're told who they are. Here's the 12. We have the whole list of the disciples here, these sets of brothers, some that we don't know a whole lot about. Don't you love James and John? Now they have this nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Anybody have a couple of boys? I'm just like, yeah, my, my kids, they, were the, they, they, they could aptly be named the Sons of Thunder. We don't really know why they're named this, whether they were great preachers or whatnot, um, but for some reason, this is the name that was given to them. What's significant about this is uh, what, what Mark is showing us here is that, it's a, that, that, that this is a new era. 
that Jesus is going to spend these three years investing and pouring in and equipping and empowering these 12, 12 men who will, as Ephesians 2.20 say, be the foundation for the church. Jesus as the cornerstone, but these men whom he will appoint as apostles will be the foundation for the church. Like Israel founded on the 12 tribes, like Jacob's sons, and Israel taking their names and their tribes after these. Now Christ is inaugurating a new era in the church upon these men. Jesus is calling them. There's, there's, there's a, a special love that he, and a special appointment, a special equipping that he's placing upon these men. As you go further here, Jesus, he, the crowd is following him the, versus the Jesus is calling his followers. As the story goes on, you see here in one scene, he's ready to escape, and in the others, he's ready to go deeper. And one, he's ready to get out of there in verse 9, and in the other, he's ready to uh, spend even more time. Look at verse 9. Here he has a boat ready for escape versus in verse 14, he wants to escape with the brothers. You know, here, look at verse 9 here. If, if things got too wild, he, he had an escape route. You can imagine, like, him standing on the shore and preaching, which was actually a strategic thing because his voice would carry out among the crowds that were gathering. But it's like, it's like having a getaway car right behind him. So if, if people start to press upon him, he can, he, he can just literally jump in the boat, and, uh, and then the disciples would just start rowing, and they can throw the sails, and whew, they can get out so that they not be crushed. Look at that. Do you see the language there in verse 9? Lest they crush him. Have you ever been to a concert or to some sort of event where everybody is just like packed together like that? Where, you, where, where you're so claustrophobic and everybody is just right up against you and you don't even know who it is that's around you? Apparently that's the scene that's happening. I was on myself, this was back in college in Chicago and was at a concert and was right up front, you know, it was like they had one of those like metal gates in front and there's about, I don't know, four feet or whatever to the stage so people couldn't get up there. And I was right up front and people were just like crushing me to where like my ribs and my stomach was pushed up against it and you, you have to throw some elbows around to kind of get some space. But uh, I, I didn't have a boat, needless to say, to get out of there. Uh, I just had to wait till the, the show was over, I guess. Um, but he had a boat because he was, he was afraid for his life at the crowds that were pressing in upon him. And yet, juxtaposed against this, here on the mountain, he was ready to escape with his brothers. Look at the affection in this phrase in verse 14. He appointed the 12 whom he called apostles so that, here's the reason, so that they might be with him. This, this gives me like the picture of our small groups. You know, what, what God wants to do as, a, as, as our men and women, we desire to be with one another. It gives me the thoughts of like man camp and guys coming and sitting around our campfire because we desire to be with one another. It gives me a picture of like, uh, of like sisters getaways. You know, weekends away with the, the ladies as we kind of escape from all the, the, the chaos and the demands of life to have some, uh, just some quality time with the people that we love. Anybody use a, a getaway like that right now? Say, so, yeah, I could, I, I could. But he wanted this quality time. In one, you have the chaos, and the other is this quality time. It gets, it, it gets even more intense. Like, look at verse 10. The crowds are pressing in. They're, they're, they're coming upon him. Word has spread all the healing miracles that, uh, that are talked about in chapters one and two. They're pressing in just to touch him. 
They, they, they want to be near him. It's not like a nice like, crowd like Jesus up here teaching, doing his things, and everybody's nice and sitting in the pews on the, on the, on the shore, right? No, they're pressing in because they want to touch him. Parents, you know a little bit about this, like your kids. They want to be near to touch you, don't they? You're like reading a book on the couch and you have multiple couches in your living room where they could like nicely sit and read their own book, but no, they want to be like right next to you, right? Like right in here and like in between you and the book you're trying to read, right? Like they just want to be close. And that's not necessarily bad. Yeah, as Malachi, you know, gets closer to, to mom right there. He wants to be close. We, have, we also have a cat like this. Yeah? If you've been to our house, Minnow, our cat, is just like, even though there's multiple windows, the sun's shining in, all kinds of places where, where she could get warm. No, the, where she wants to be is right in your lap. Right? Actually, like kind of right here in your neck, you know, like where, where apparently there's just the most heat that she can absorb from you. And these crowds that were just coming to Jesus for a miracle, they just wanted to touch him. They were coming because of their, with their diseases and they just knew if they could get close to him, they wanted what Jesus had to offer. They were coming in, they were getting as close as they could. And yet on the mountaintop, the disciples were being sent out. They were being sent out. Jesus brought them near. He, he brought them in to spend time to equip and empower them, to invest in them, to know them as brothers, but not forever, not just to keep them here close by. They were brought near then to be sent out. Whereas the crowds were coming here, the few were being sent out to preach and with authority to cast out demons. They were being sent out as expositors and as exorcists one to preach the word and one to cast out demons and likely not in the same way that Hollywood portrays all these things in movies, just by the way, okay? But they were being, uh, they were being equipped to preach the word of God and what do we know about the word of God? It's powerful, isn't it? The word of God as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, as the good news of Jesus Christ is shared with authority, this casts out the things that live in darkness, including demons, including our sin. And as they carried on in their preaching ministry, the demons fled. Sins were forgiven. People were made new, not in their giftedness, not because of their power, but because of the power of the word of God, because of the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is equipping and preparing his ambassadors for the work of the ministry where those are pressing upon him. Jesus here, he takes this group of people and he sends them out. And both scenes end with an act of betrayal. Both of these, the seaside saga and the mountaintop meeting end in acts of betrayal. The demons betray his identity where Judas betrays his love. Look at how verse 11 and 12 talk about it. They say, and whenever the unclean spirits see him, all they do is have to just see him. They fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. They just see him. See, beloved, what is being revealed here about who Jesus is as the son of God? The Pharisees rejected, the disciples suspected, but the demons revealed. They revealed that he was the son of God and just seeing him causes them to shriek out because they know they know. There was an ancient belief at, in, in these days that uh, in the like, Greco-Roman mythology that uh, if you knew the true name or true identity of the God, little g God, that you could control him or her. And so likely this is what's happening here. They are revealing this is the Son of God. And what does Jesus do? He silences them. 
he strictly orders them not to make him known because here, beloved, they can't control him. Sure, they know his name, but they can't control him. Who's the one that's in control? Christ is. We've just been singing about that all morning. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who's in control. Saying his name is not a way to sway him. It's a way to worship him. It's a way to worship him. And so they are silenced, one, because they cannot control him. They cannot control him. He is the one who's in control here. And his time had not yet come. He had more ministry to do. He had more people to heal, miracles to do, teaching to begin more investment into these, uh, these disciples who would become apostles before he would be revealed as the Son of God and die as the Lamb of God upon the cross. And so he silences them. He silences them. They betray his identity and he hushes them up. The mountaintop here, we're also given a glimpse into Judas' betrayal. The one here, he's listed. Uh, you should note that as all, on all these lists of apostles, he's always listed last, and he's always listed with an asterisk after his name. It's like, you know, professional baseball players that make it into the Hall of Fame or have like a record, you know, they've got the most home runs for this season, but there's this little asterisk and then down at the bottom, uh, but he was convicted of taking performance enhancing drugs, you know? It's like the thing that always goes upon their name. And here the same as Judas. He hadn't yet betrayed him, but he would. Lest we forget, he's listed last. It's a warning to us, but don't miss this. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this, and Jesus had him close. Jesus continued to, to, to teach him and allow him to be among the disciples. He, he desired him, and he kept him near until Judas would uh, go the way that had been appointed for him and abandon ship. Before he would do what he did to betray our Lord before his death he would be the one who betrayed him. And so, beloved, you see these two scenarios, you see these two scenes kind of stacked up side by side, and the heart of the matter is that there are those who want what Jesus offers. There are those who just simply want to see Jesus, who want to be around him because of the show that uh, happens. They want to be around him because of the, the healing and the miracles that happen uh, when you are around Christ. And then there are those who just simply want Christ. It's the difference between the, the, the attitude of give me the goods versus give me Jesus. It's the difference between those who want just something from Jesus and those who want to know Jesus. They want the, the work of Christ without the person of Christ, the reward without the relationship. And here's the thing, friends, the difference is eternal. The difference is eternal. Those who just want something from Christ versus those who want to know Christ. And as these two things are put before us here, as these two uh, scenes are brought before us, and as the, the, the heart of the matter is put before us, as the Spirit does His work in your heart now, what is He shining a light on? Are you part of the many who simply acknowledge Jesus? Or the few who actually follow Him? Jesus in another passage in the Sermon of the Mount makes a startling statement. 
Let me read it for you. This is, this is Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. And he teaches this. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Are few. See, if you find yourself, I, well, I, want, the, I want the easy way, I want the comfortable way, I don't, I don't want the, the difficulty, I just want Jesus to make my life easy, you probably have found yourself on the wide road who just simply want what Jesus offers. Not those that have find themselves on the hard road, who found that the cost of following Christ is real, that the sacrifice can be great. And so this morning, is the Spirit shining a light on your sin? Have you been trying to just fake it until you make it? You're coming to Christ, you're coming to church, you're, you're coming because you've heard that he can do many things and so you're around it, but this morning you realize, man, I might just be part of the crowd who just want something from Jesus. But now that you're close, now that you're seeing Jesus for who he is as the son of God, you realize, well, I don't, I don't have him. And what should you do, friend? Do is what we saw in both passages. Come to Jesus. Come to, come to Christ. He's calling you. He desires to save you. He will not turn you away. He's called you to bring you near and then, yes, to send you out. Do you want Christ or just what he has to offer? He's calling you. Come today, today, today. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. And yet, none of us are exempt from examining or testing our own hearts. Even as followers of Christ, called to salvation, with new hearts, our, our hearts even can cross this line of wanting only what Jesus does for us. And we can grow cold towards the joy and the intimacy of knowing Jesus Christ. Even as believers, we can do this. And this, this happens as we walk through seasons of disappointment. This happens as, as we have unmet expectations in our life. This, this, we, we cross this line of only wanting the work of Jesus and not the person of Jesus when, when, when the things that we think we need or deserve. I want a spouse, I want a kids, I want a new job, I want to make this amount of money, I want, I want these things, and I, I want to be healthy. And then when those things aren't met, We get disappointed, we get discouraged, and we forget the whole point of what it means to follow Jesus. We forget the whole point of what it means to be in a relationship where we just love somebody because of what they do for us versus just loving somebody simply because of who they are. In seasons of disappointment, we, we can cross over this line and, and, and just become a part of, of, the, of the many, not losing our salvation, not that we are walking away from Christ. We've just missed the point and our hearts have grown cold. It happens in seasons of difficulty. 
happens when the cost of following Christ is great, when our health isn't great, when things aren't going great in our family, when things are hard in our marriage, when things are hard at church, when things are, 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 are making us sacrifice. The loss is real. We can, we can get upset angry even at the Lord. Why aren't you coming through? Why aren't you doing this for me? And we miss the point that it's about coming near to Christ and being sent out in his mission. You know, the apostle Paul knew something about the difference. As you read through the epistles, he, he, he sheds light on just how to do this, on what it means to know Christ intimately Probably the best letter, the best book that, that uh, reveals these things for us, the, the, the joy of knowing Christ is the book of Philippians. And he taught the Philippians how to know the difference. And the kicker is, is he teaches them while he is in prison. He'd been put in prison for preaching Christ, but even this did not hinder his relationship with Christ, nor his determination for others to know Christ. Even in the most harsh of circumstances, this was his attitude. This is Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do the circumstances you find yourself in, can you find your heart attitude saying the same thing? whether it's good or bad, whether what's happening in your job or in your family, that you can say, hey, because of this, Christ is using this for the advancement of the gospel in this situation. That's what it means to, to, to know Christ, to want to know Christ and not just the, the life that he gives and offers. And he goes on as he teaches through Philippians, he gives us some indicators that you, you wanna know that you want Christ more than you want just what he offers. Here's some, here's some heart tests for you. Here's, here's some ways to know I want Jesus. You ready for him? Here's what he says in, in Philippians 1.21, the loss of life doesn't scare you. If losing your life does not scare you, you likely want Jesus more than just what he has to offer. For in Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul did not fear for his life. He knew that, that to die, who's he gonna be with? Christ, he would be immediately in his presence. Beloved, if you are in Christ today, even if you lose your life, you will not be sad. You will experience the greatest joy you, would ever, you will ever know. Loss of life doesn't scare you, but if God leaves you here, more opportunity, more opportunity to continue growing in Christ, to continue to, to preach to others, to continue to live a life that exemplifies Christ. You want to love Jesus, then the loss of life doesn't scare you. Second, that the loss of possessions doesn't bother you. The loss of possessions does not bother you. Hear what he says in, in Philippians 3, 7 to 8. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Beloved, if, if losing your home, if losing your vehicle, if losing the things that you own does not scare you, you just may love Christ more than what he has to offer. 
But if losing those things, like, no, this is, I, I, I can't lose this. I can't, I, 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 that's, you know, look, I'll give up all kinds of things. I'll give up my time. I'll even, I'll even give my money generously. But this one thing, if you, if you call me to give this up, uh, I don't know. And Christ, through spirit and his kindness and gentleness, he's just pointing out the idols of our heart that oftentimes stand in the way of knowing him more intimately. But these things shouldn't scare us. It gives us one other heart test, one other indicator in chapter four that the loss of lifestyle doesn't matter to you. The loss of lifestyle doesn't matter to you. Hear this, Philippians 4, 11 to 13, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be bound, uh, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes as we are, we cling so tightly to the, the, the lifestyle that we have. You know, the, the socioeconomic indicators of where we, uh, you know, where we fit in the tax brackets the side of town in which we live, the, the things that we're able to uh, do and the money that we're able to spend on certain things. And sometimes for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of knowing Christ, he, he, he removes those things that become idols in our hearts. What we're being taught here is that you wanna know Christ, then these things shouldn't matter to us. These things shouldn't matter to us. Sure, is making money okay? Yeah, it's okay to have money. It's okay to make a lot of it. It's okay to be rich. But it's not okay for money to have you. It's not okay to have possessions. It's it's okay to have possessions. It's okay to have things. It's not okay for things to have you. It's not okay when those things become like, like we, we grip them so tightly and if, if then the thought of losing them is, is preposterous to us. But we want Christ. Christ is what is most important to us. And these disciples, as we, as we think on what God is calling them to here, they undoubtedly counted it as they came near and then were sent out by Christ. They gave up their professions. They gave up their, their jobs. They left behind their families to know Christ, to be sent out on his mission. And what did they gain on this earth? They gained the demands of life. They gained the crushing burdens of other people's needs. They gained the, the hordes of people wanting their attention as they would be used for the advancement of the gospel across their, uh, that Greco-Roman empire of that day. But what they gained eternally is far better, isn't it? What they gained uh, was far more glorious. See, what Christ has to offer is much better than the physical, tangible things that we can hold on to. The joy of knowing Christ, the hope and certainty and peace and joy and love that we have from following Christ, no matter our circumstances, no matter our lifestyle, no matter our possessions, is far greater. It's far greater. Immeasurable treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, who's the worthy one, the Son of God, that would make himself known to us. 
who would be revealed to us and then desired for us to be in relationship with him? Ponder on that, meditate on that today. Put that before your mind. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Put that before your mind in whatever circumstance you're in. And allow the fact that the Son of God knows you and loves you as his child will give you a measurable sense of joy that is incomparable, that no toy, possession, lifestyle, influence could ever offer. But it's only found in knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. Let's pray together.